Welcome to the Deadly Analysis Podcast. My name is Noah Adam, and I'm the host of the program, a program where we aim to analyze and understand the foundations of our fears, both individually and collectively. And the way we do this is by looking at horror movies. We take really, really good, scary movies, we crack them open and see what we can find inside. I mean, that's only fair, right? Horror movies love to dissect us, and so we're simply returning the favor here at the Deadly Analysis Podcast. And I got to say that this podcast episode is extra special to me. It's extra special because we're going to be talking about the film that for the majority of my life I've looked back on as probably the scariest movie I've ever seen. I've only seen it three times in my life, each 10 years apart, a decade apart. I watched it when it came out in 1997, I watched it again in 2007, and then I just finished it last week. Uh, for the third time, and that film is Event Horizon. Now, before I go any further, I, I think it's important to emphasize again, like we've done in our previous podcast, that what does the work in scaring a person can really range wildly depending on one's personal psychology, their past experiences, how they were raised, their relationships with others, etc. There's this complex apparatus that, depending on how you find yourself climbing it over the years, drops you off into one area versus another in terms of what scares you in the horror genre. I know some people that are deathly afraid of clown movies, other, you know, the quintessential slasher that comes into your home and chases you around the house, and yet others, horror films where there's more of an unraveling of relationships. So horror, in that sense, is a somewhat relative idea. Now, I say all this because this movie, Event Horizon, is without a doubt the most polarizing horror film I think I know of. And what I mean by that is I know way too many people who consider this horror film to be the scariest movie they've ever seen. And then I know others who just don't get it at all. They don't think it's scary whatsoever. I don't know many people who fall somewhere in the middle with this film, and that's very strange to me. I think that's worth exploring. It seems like it's absolutely terrifying, or it's not scary at all. That's that's really strange. So Event Horizon. Event Horizon is a 1997 horror film from Paul W.S. Anderson, the same guy who directed all of the horrendous and blasphemous Resident Evil movies, something I'm still trying to forgive him for. In any event, or in any event horizon. Uh, the film is set in deep space in the year 2047, and a distress signal has been intercepted, originating from a highly secret and experimental spaceship that vanished seven years prior. The spaceship was originally tasked with being the first to travel faster than the speed of light by utilizing an experimental gravity drive technology. And in doing so, the ship simply vanished without a trace. Nobody knows what happened to it. And now it suddenly and inexplicably shows back up near the planet Neptune seven years later, and so a team has been dis- Dispatched, along with the creator of the gravity drive, Dr. Weir, to go assess the ship and see if any of the original crew are alive. And what they discover is absolutely terrifying. Where has she been for the last seven years, Doctor? The spaceship has gone beyond the boundaries of our universe to a dimension of unimaginable chaos and darkness and pain. All lovely things that it has decided to bring back to us into our universe. Yay! And as the dispatched crew starts to investigate the event horizon and they start to unravel these truths, the ship begins to manifest each of the crew's deepest and darkest fears, eventually culminating in some pretty brutal deaths. At a certain point in the movie, as you can imagine, the crew's sentiment changes from let's investigate this ship to fuck this ship. At that point, it's simply a matter of getting out alive. Good luck with that. You can't leave. She won't let you. So like all of the other horror movies that we review here at the Deadly Analysis Podcast, I want to distinguish between enjoying this film 
and appreciating it. That is, I want to tell you what I liked about it, and then I want to analyze it. So let me tell you what I enjoyed about this film. First and foremost, I enjoyed just the raw brutality of this movie. I, I think of all my favorite scary movies, this one is the most visceral. I mean, there are scenes in this movie, there are sequences that you just feel in your gut. You know what I mean? Uh, the famous one, the, the one that everyone knows who's seen this movie, is the infamous blood orgy scene where we finally find out you know, what happened to the original crew of the Event Horizon. We're treated to everything from maggot-filled wounds to a man being sodomized by a metal pipe to the ripping out of eyeballs. It's, it's basically what would happen if Pinhead and the Cenobites popped some mollies and a few Viagra and went out into space for a good time. I mean, there is imagery in this movie that does not leave you. Everything from being gutted and flayed to detailed depictions of the physical damage that occurs to the human body when in space. I know more than one person who walked into the theater in 1997 thinking that this was a sci-fi movie, like just a sci-fi movie, and they left scarred for life. And the practical effects in this film are simply masterful, and the lack of CGI sort of makes you feel everything in a much more palpable way. Now with that said, I could have gone without the Jean-Claude Van Damme style action flick sound effects. It was like Paul Anderson forgot he wasn't making Mortal Kombat anymore. Uh, I really enjoyed the acting in this film. Both Sam Neill and Lawrence Fishburne do a fantastic job as Dr. Weir and Captain Miller. And Jason Isaacs kills it as Lucius Malfoy Space Cadet. I mean, it's an amazing ensemble, really. But I gotta say, I, what I think I enjoyed the most about this movie is the rich imagery and symbolism that they scattered throughout the film. Modeling the event horizon after the Notre Dame Cathedral gave the ship an incredibly archaic and haunting atmosphere. And it turns out that the gravity drive that opens the gateway to the chaos dimension was originally slated to be a, just a simple black orb suspended in the air between pillars, but that was later remodeled to involve interlocking circles as an homage to Lamer Sean's puzzle box in Hellraiser. In fact, there's just a lot of Hellraiser in this film, and it's not just in terms of the chaotic and painful image although that's definitely there. That's the obvious stuff, though. When you think about it, there's even a similar drive in both of the stories. One could argue that it's the same human curiosity to solve great puzzles and to go beyond the limits of our current understanding, whether scientifically or aesthetically. Part of the excitement of that is, is the unknowingness of it, right? That's sort of what's on the other side, what's beyond. I remember listening to a podcast a few years ago where some of the scientists at CERN, the place where they developed the Large Hadron Collider, uh, they were discussing the very, very minute and theoretical possibility that the particle accelerator could actually cause a black hole, which of course would kill every conscious and sentient creature we're aware of. I mean, it wouldn't just even destroy our planet, it would destroy plenty of other planets as well. Now, obviously it didn't, but when I reflect on that, when I reflect on that, that, that kind of sleeping monster that's there, that we're pretty sure we're not going to wake up on our trek through human understanding and scientific discovery, I mean, it dawned on me that that's, that's really the sort of monster that's in Event Horizon. And what I enjoyed about Event Horizon is that you finally get to see what that deep fear looks like. It puts flesh on, on the monumentally improbable but very real risk that exists anytime we cross some great boundary in furthering some larger human endeavor. Event Horizon shows you what that sleeping monster finally looks like. And it's chaos. So I enjoyed the nod to Hellraiser. I also enjoyed the nods to Doom, which is one of my favorite video games of all time. You can't help but notice it in the sound effects. And the spitting corridor sequence, which sort of echoes the tunnel of hell from Doom 3. 
As a side note, there's actually an Event Horizon mod for Doom, which is absolutely insane to play. I, I downloaded it with the intent of talking about some of the similarities here in this podcast, but I just, I literally found myself playing with it for hours and I didn't really get any work done. So fair warning, that game itself is is kind of a, kind of a black hole. So sucks you right in. Uh, I could go on to like tons of other connections between this film and other games like Dead Space and Warhammer 40,000, but suffice it to say that although this film was panned pretty heavily when it came out, Time has molded it into an iconic piece of cinema that's inspired fear in entirely other avenues of entertainment. In fact, a lot of Warhammer 40,000 players actually consider Event Horizon to be a kind of prequel to their lore and envision the story as existing within the same universe, which is pretty freaking cool. But let's let's appreciate this film. Let, let's talk about what this movie is all about. Guilt. Guilt is everything in this movie. The monster in Event Horizon utilizes the greatest guilt and fears of the crew. So for Dr. Weir, this is him not being there for his wife, which resulted in her suicide. For Captain Miller, it's abandoning an old crewman named Korik, who he left to die and burn alive. For Peters, it's the abandonment of her child, who's sick. And we even hear Justin say that he's been shown the darkness inside him. The dark inside me from the other place. The characters in this movie that succumb to the weight of their guilt die by way of the event horizon. Peters falls to her death while chasing an apparition of her son. Dr. Weir gives in to the phantasm that resembles his wife, and he's consumed. Justin opens the airlock into space. So it's almost like letting the guilt take hold essentially ends in your destruction. Now, Captain Miller's a little different. He's different because he articulates his guilt, his sin, right? He essentially confesses it. That's just it, DJ. I, I never told anybody. But this ship knew about it. And that confession allows him to not be blinded by the power of the event horizon. Captain Miller, in many ways, overcomes the ship's hold and finds the strength to sacrifice himself for his crew. Right? He overcomes that guilt, and far from leaving his crew behind, he saves them. Or at least the ones that are left alive. So there's there's just a ton of Catholic things happening in this film when you think about it, right? There's Catholic notions of guilt and of confessions. Uh, think of all the people that we see in this movie who take out their eyes. I mean, while that's clearly meant to disturb you, I think even that has some religious and theological undertones in it, right? After all, it was Jesus who said that if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. So apparently for most of the guys on the event horizon, it looks like their right and left eyes were causing them to sin, but you get the point. I mean, perhaps we could interpret these sequences as, you know, something like there can be no guilt if you no longer have a way of seeing it. Or maybe to put a Nietzschean spin on it, uh, you know, maybe we could look at this as a kind of reinterpretation of guilt, right? Nietzsche once said that if a person trains their conscience, uh, it will kiss as it bites. This could be why the original crewman who pulls his eyes out on the event horizon, if you f if you sort of freeze the frame, it looks like he's almost he's almost offering it with his hands out, right? Like far from trying to repulse you here, there's a sense in which it seems like he's almost trying to invite you. So I feel like there's something there's something to that in this movie that this approach to guilt, to drowning in our sins and torturing ourselves. I mean, you'll notice that a lot of the ship, especially the ship's core where the gravity drive is, like it all kind of looks like a torture chamber, right? A good amount of the ship resembles something like a medieval torture chamber. So I don't know, perhaps there's something there. Maybe there's something about the archaic or dare I say religious notion of, of sort of cradling sin, of seeing oneself as guilty in a way that becomes unhealthy. Who knows? Like most of the horror films I've been reviewing, it could just be, you know, me working out my own personal demons by, by looking for this stuff. So who knows? Now, I actually think that the most important part of Event Horizon is this, this nether realm, the, this place described in the movie as a kind of hell or a place of pure chaos. Right? So when you think of chaos, it, in chaos, there's no frame of reference. And in that sense, there's a real fundamentality to that notion. Like, have you ever just 
like just sit and think about how your body works, right, at the most fundamental level. I mean, think about it. What, what you consider to be yourself, what makes up you is a collection of unordered microscopic cells that are arranged in such a way that they create a certain structure that you refer to as your body, right? The bumping together of fundamental particles of matter, like that results in your ability to have hands or to think things, right? I mean, you're filled with trillions of chemical reactions and trillions of molecules bumping around doing this thing and that thing. And, and there's this emergence of order that results and it results in you. And to that extent, one could interpret this realm of pure chaos and event horizon as a kind of place of origin, as a reflection of our fundamentality. I mean, when you break down you to the most fundamental components, like you're left with vibrating strings or quarks or all other manner of chaos. I mean, that same chaos is in us in a certain sense. It is us. And maybe that's why Justin refers to the chaos dimension as the dark place inside him. And I think that might be why this movie scares me so much, because it takes the most fundamental machine of the universe, right, disorder and chaos, and it gives you a macroscopic picture of it. Like it captures it in a bottle and it gives you a glimpse of it like a nightmare, like a reminder. And I noticed that the horror movies that scare me the most are the ones that make you think about things you don't want to. Which for me is, you know, thinking about one day ceasing to exist and no longer being a person. Or about the brokenness of who we are as social creatures. Right? And, and lastly, the fear that we're not anything special. That at the end of the day we're birthed and then we're banished by the same engine. One of purely chaotic happenstance. Now, that's not an argument, right? Like, don't misunderstand. I'm not arguing, like, that's the way the universe really is. I'm saying that's the fear. The fear in Event Horizon is in seeing the culmination of all scientific human endeavors collapse back into the most fundamental state from which we came. Chaos. And that, my friends, that is terrifying. But don't take my word for it. Uh, let me bring you into a discussion that I had with three other people much smarter than me on the topic of this film. We sat down and discussed what we liked and disliked about the film as well as our various different interpretations of it. I was lucky enough to have a friend join me who's uh, actually a director. He's done film. And these guys are all just philosophically minded. So if you enjoyed my interpretation, I'm sure you'll enjoy theirs as well. So with that said, let's, let's get some of their opinions on this also. Uh, this movie scares the hell out of me. Um... I've seen it more times, uh, more than three, probably probably close to 20 times, um, because I've, and I saw it in the theaters when it came out, um, uh, because I, I feel like I need to revisit it and try to unravel why it disturbs me in the way that it does. And um, on its face, yeah, there are a lot of elements that are cheesy, but it still gets under my skin. Well, I don't... <sighs> Okay, it's not, it's not a great movie, and there's, there's a bunch of awful elements in the movie, but I do actually think it's a scary movie, um, and it's because it has particular moments. Like, if, if you could reduce Event Horizon to maybe four up to three-minute YouTube video clips, you could pick segments of that movie that are genuinely freaky and would get millions of views and people would be like, oh my God, what the fuck is happening in this video, right? So in that sense, I think it does succeed in occasionally being a very scary movie. Overall, I think that um, the movie lacks some essential qualities to make it a classic, but I do understand why people are find a lot of the movie's symbolism and, and pageantry intimidating. Yeah, that's important, right? Maybe we should start by kind of making the distinction between a good film and a scary film in the term in, in, in when it comes to the genre of horror. 
right? Um, one of the things that I've learned since I've been doing this podcast and the five or six episodes that we've done is just the, the wide range of diversity when it comes to what makes a movie scary. Um, I mean, there could be entire movie, there could be movies that aren't even considered horror that are absolutely horrifying to certain people. I think, I think Event Horizon is, is an intellectually shallow and kind of from, from a, a maybe narratively unsatisfying film, but I do think that it is a, a viscerally terrifying film. Oh my God, Event Horizon is probably, I mean, it's definitely in the top five for me of scary movies uh, and, and probably closer to number one. I, I, um, I watched this movie once when it first came out and it, and it, uh, it shook me to my foundation not because of the, I think, the pettiness of the little jump scares that are in it, you know, the hand coming out uh, and, and uh, it not actually being attached to a body and then the corpse floating, you know, that kind of a thing. That, um, that was uh, visually uh, scary, and I, I agree with Antonio. I think this is a viscerally scary movie. But I do think that I internalized this um, um, philosophically, theologically, uh, you know, we've all, all of us here have read Paradise Lost probably several, several times. And uh, to see something that, uh, maybe it's to see something come to life from Paradise Lost um, that I, uh, you know, to make the connection between seeing that visually and reading in a book and then, and then saying these two things are linked in a way. Uh, was scary for me, but also I had, I, I mean, I, I had just come into my own of being, uh, you know, uh, steadfastly atheist, and uh, the ideas of heaven and hell didn't really scare me, but uh, I, I thought that it was, um, I think the thing that is most difficult with this movie is that the, the hell in this movie doesn't need to be uh, some existing theological place where there's God who's created it. It is another dimension it, it, is, uh, it is something else in the vastness of the unknown that is out there uh, that could be waiting for us, you know, one reality that we can imagine um, and things that we can't imagine. And I think that is what makes this movie so terrifying is that not only does it open the door visually to what their concept of hell is in this other dimension, but it also gives the viewer license to create whatever other alternate reality that they want and say, I can fold space to space and time and be in this fucking dark pit of hell hole anywhere in existence. And uh, it could be my own personal, um, my own personal hell. So I think that that's why this movie scares the shit out of me. Yeah, that's a, that's a great segue. I mean, it's very Lovecraftian in a certain sense, right? There's this idea of, of, of the darkness, of the otherness. Um, one of the notes that I put down when I was watching this movie is I got the sense in, in which when I was watching this that the antagonist of Event Horizon struck me as the same antagonist in Halloween. And what I mean by that is we know Michael Myers is the killer in Halloween, but there's something behind Michael Myers. There's an unknownness. There's a void. There's something out there beyond our imagination, some unnamed evil that is, is, is just intangible to us where we exist. And when I watch Event Horizon, I felt the same way as when I watch particular scenes in Halloween where I just I don't know what this is that is, is, is claiming the lives of people, what's coming. You know, I, there, there's a couple scenes in Event Horizon, for example, that strike me in this way, very Lovecraftian, where, for example, Justin uh, will say something like, who, you know, um, the last, you know, who's coming, something's coming, and he'll say the darkness, the dark inside me from the other place, these very vague very nebulous concepts of some otherworldly intangible malevolence that is 
is meant to harm. Well, and I, I think we've already uh, hit the nail on the head for me. One of the uh, one of the most frightening elements of this is that Event Horizon Event Horizon puts us into a, a world, the world that we are occupying when we are in this movie. Um, is one where there isn't necessarily a God, there isn't necessarily a heaven, but there is definitely a hell. Um, uh, that there is, um, and this ties in, it ties into the other, uh, the other really disturbing element of this for me, uh, which is the, uh, the permanence of grief. Um, uh, one of the things that we keep getting confronted by, like, we, we have these little uh, jump cuts, uh, torture, barbed wire, torture, barbed wire, uh, uh, sodomy, uh, sodomy with structural steel kind of thing. Um, but the bits where we actually linger, uh, the, the form of torment that we're presented with is, here is this grief that defines your life, that defines your psyche. And, and in the case of uh, Dr. Weir, Sam Neill's character, it's his dead wife. Um, in the case of uh, uh, Peters, uh, the medical technician, it's the son whose disease she could not cure. Um, uh, and they are, they're tormented by this. Here, here is this awful thing that you feel is never going to get better. And by the way, you're right. It's never going to get better. Um, that apex of grief is where you will persist and where you will exist um, for the rest of your conscious life. So uh, that... That's one of the things that really gets under my skin about the movie. Um, but uh, the uh, to the, the the theological aspect and that uh, kind of Lovecraftian thing that uh, that you were talking about, um, uh, I feel like I, I feel like what we're presented with is even in some ways even less clear than Lovecraft um, is even less distinct um, that this is. Whatever it is that people crossing over have been exposed to, it's a thing for which we have no frame of reference, for which we have no mechanism, mechanism of interpretation, um, that we cannot understand via any analogy available to us. Um, it's so thoroughly alien. Um, and that this, uh, this hellishness is just the closest metaphor that we can reach for. Um, and that's the the terrifying thing, because it, it, the destruction. This isn't this isn't a realm that's out to get us. It's a realm utterly indifferent to us and is destructive to us simply because of our own fragility. I think this is one of the one of the film's uh, strengths and weaknesses simultaneously. It's it's a nice concept, and there's some uh, for, there's some problems with the execution. And I want to compare this to something like. Um, the thing, or maybe it follows, um, by way of contrast. So, so one one of the one of the elements narratively of making good horror is even if you're trying to project an atmosphere of something that is incomprehensible, an atmosphere of mystery, an atmosphere of chaos, you still have to hang it on some sort of rule system. It has to behave in some way that we can that we can at least conceive or predict. Or else it just becomes a bunch of apparently to us unconnected vignettes that that don't stitch together very well, right? 
So like, let, let's compare, for example, It Follows. You don't know anything about the force that that is in It Follows except that, and there's a couple rules, you know, it's following you and it's slow and it can look like anything, right? Like those are like basically three rules in It Follows. And so we know enough about the entity to be able to recognize what it's doing and what, what to, to be able to contextualize the behavior that we see as, you know, particularly malevolent or stalkerish or it's getting really close and it's about to kill you, you know, or whatever. We, we understand that when it's really close, it's at its most dangerous because we've been given these rules in advance, right? And it's the same thing with John Carpenter's The Thing, you know. You can test the blood to figure out who it is, but it can look like anything and it can do all kinds of other like crazy stuff. Um, and in similar vein, you don't know what is going on, but you don't know, but you know for a fact that the thing is not going to be, you know, a, a chair. It's going to be a, a living entity. It's going to be impersonating a person, right? Um, and you know that it's not going to want to go, you know, near fire and it's not going to want to be, have its blood tested or, or what have you. And so it gives you a couple elements to hang, to hang the narrative on where when a particular scene happens, you realize, oh, there's an implication. Is he maybe the guy who's infested now? Did he, like, is that what happened when he went, went around the corner? He got killed and now we, we've just, we're just realizing it, you know? So, and, and that's something that Event Horizon doesn't do right? Event Horizon embraces the same concept of, of a mysterious, chaotic opponent, but because it doesn't narratively hang it on a set of rules, except for maybe in the vaguest sense, um, you know, this notion of grief, but it does all kinds of stuff that doesn't necessarily relate directly into that. And so, you know, I think Event Horizon would have been a stronger movie, for example, if the, if the monster, for, as it were, were only about appearing as some aspect of your tragic past memories and trying to like lead you to your death. Like if that were the thing it did, I think it would have been a narratively stronger movie. It would have been less chaotic. It would have embraced the notion of chaos less purely, but it would have given the viewer rules to understand, okay, in this scene, what's, what, what's trying to happen is this, or the implication of what's happening, the context for what's happening is this, but we don't get that kind of social context that we get in other uh, narrative horror, and and that's where I think the vagueness starts to break down in Event Horizon and diminish its quality as a movie. I think uh, I think that uh, unfortunately much of the vagueness of Event Horizon is um, the result of its. I, I know we weren't necessarily. This seems like the natural segue. This seems like the perfect segue. Um, much of the vagueness of Event Horizon um, is the result of it being pretty much a cursed production. Um, the studio didn't officially green light the thing until 10 weeks before cameras were set to roll, which is a ludicrously short development period of time. Um, uh, Paul W.S. Anderson had, um, and this is, uh, this is an important note, um, Directors Guild of America guarantees 10 weeks of post-production. That is a guild guarantee. And Event Horizon, Paul Anderson signed off on a rider waiving that right to do it in four. Um, because he had availability conflicts and because there was a release deadline that he was trying to hit. 
Um, so I, I definitely feel like the narrative structure of the movie suffered as a result of that. But uh, to, to the more philosophical element of um, uh, a nar uh, narrativity and giving an audience a clue to the rules, um, I point us to another Carpenter production, which is easily my number one favorite horror movie of all time, um, and probably my favorite movie, period. Uh, Carpenter's Halloween. Um, the absence of rules, the absence of logic, the absence of an underpinning narrativity um, that through which we can predict, um, discern, and ultimately propose a problem-solving solution is exactly why Michael Myers was as terrifying as he was. Um, the, for me, the most frightening scene in Halloween is not Michael Myers going through the kitchen, a uh, teenager, chkunk. Um, it is Dr. Loomis effectively stating right at the camera, right at the audience, I've dedicated my entire life to comprehension of malformed psyche and the eventual treatment of it. And I looked at this and realized understanding does nothing. Comprehension does nothing. There, this is not a problem that can be resolved by understanding it. And in point of fact, the only thing that understanding it does is guarantee that you are close enough to it to be in range. I felt I felt that it didn't have an organizing principle for for its menace. Like I said, it did. It, it still didn't have sort of an organizing principle to the chaos. Like for example, if you read Lovecraft, to, to refer specifically to Lovecraft. Um, if you if you read Lovecraft, the the reason that Lovecraft is creepy is not because it's it's random, um, and and you know to the point of Halloween, I would I would say you know despite the fact that there is a clearly supernatural element to the to the antagonist that that causes him to be um, sort of unstoppable by normal forces of comprehension. Um, there's still a corporeality to it. You know, it's still embodied in Michael Myers. We know it's not, the furniture is not going to suddenly start eating people because the Halloween force is coming around and there is no understanding it and it could strike from any direction. It can't actually strike to, from any direction. There is an, there is an embodiment to it, right? There's an organizing principle to the menace. Um, and in similar vein, like if you read, uh, uh, Lovecraft's like Nyarlathotep, for example, the, the, the organizing principle to the menace there is, um, is this singular individual and the, the malevolent charisma that he has over masses of people as he travels the earth. Um, and, and so we, un we, we understand that it's not that he's suddenly going to call fire from the sky. We, un we understand that the, his sort of menace is he's going to lead people into these dark tombs and they'll never be seen again. Um, and so, but, but with Event Horizon, um, you can't really predict what's going to happen. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's no, there's no, there's no theme to the violence. It's, you know, okay, there's a, there's a crazy, you know, uh, flashback to, you know, this tragedy that happened here, here, the air suddenly ignites and roars after you as you, you know, run down the hall. Um, and, uh, and you know, here it, there's like a, kind of like a possessed dude who suddenly comes back from the dead, um, and and so on. There's it's 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 so disconnected from from 
an, any sort of organizing principle that it sort of becomes, like I said, it feels more like a series of staggered vignettes. And there's elements in those vignettes that are that are scary, right? There's good elements in, in some of those vignettes, but for the most part, it doesn't it doesn't serve to inform us about anything other than there's bad shit happening, right? And there's bad shit happening is is nice, and it can be executed in a stylistically um, compelling sort of way, but without it's not something that you can sort of chew on, at least from my perspective. It's not something that you can chew on for two hours and and emerge at the other end knowing no more about and still sort of be satisfied with that. To to go through uh, to go through those examples of the horror that we encounter in Event Horizon, um, we have air suddenly bursting into flames, directly reflecting Lawrence Fishburne's burden of guilt at abandoning a crewman. Uh, during uh, uh, during a fire, um, we have uh, uh, Justin in the airlock, um, uh, apparently possessed by the darkness, and um, uh, delivering this uh, nihilistic diatribe to Peters, which seems totally yeah, we're, it seems totally random except. Justin's nickname is Baby Bear. Peter's nickname is Mama Bear. The point of that scene, the torment in that scene, was not directed at Justin. It was directed at Peter's, who is defined by the son that she is losing one inch at a time. She has a surrogate son in Justin, who is about to blow himself out of an airlock for no discernible reason. Um, there, there is a consistency in how these people are tormented when there is a person present. It does get a little arbitrary when Weir starts running around and playing Cenobite. Um, but um, that is the human agent, the human proxy of this thing. Um, but uh, if, we're, if we're talking about the nature of Lovecraftian horror, I, and by the way, I love that we're in a context where we can reference H.P. Lovecraft as academic sourcing. Um, it feels, uh, I, I would uh, point to uh, At the Mountains of Madness, where the ultimate horror was the Shoggoth, the thing that has no form can assume any form that is necessary, that is useful, uh, the ultimate biological tool, and ultimately that, uh, uh, that polymorphic capability um, running amok, running out of control. And that that was what ultimately destroyed the old ones. For, like for me, the most terrifying line in that, uh, in that novella was poor old ones. The moment that the human being uh, associates with that which has been presented up to this point as the uh, utterly alien, utterly unrelatable, and uh, utterly monstrous preceding civilization on Earth, um, only to realize that they had been destroyed by something still less relatable. I think adding space, as, as, as general as that sounds, yes. may have actually yes. helped a lot. Yeah, I, definitely onto something there. And, and because, because if you really think about it, at the end of the day, Event Horizon is a haunted house movie, right? It's not, it's not, it's not actually um, particularly innovative in its genre. It's basically a possessed house movie you know, an Amityville horror kind of, kind of flick, except it's set in space. 
And so this is this is the element that I think it does actually really effectively in its in its conception is that because it's both a haunted house movie and a space movie, you know, it's sort of a haunted ship movie at the same time. Um, it it encapsulates two of our different sets of fears, right? And so the 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 hell house fear is our our fear of of the subterranean right it's it's of the flames of hell licking up out of the ground to reach us in in what we feel like should be you know a comfortable environment that that you know that makes us safe and that is something that we've built with our own hands and that we under fundamentally understand right and and the scary space element is um our fear of the frontier rather than our rather than our fear of what's lurking beneath the feet of the familiar in, in space, it's the fear of the frontier. And so by having a haunted house in space, you basically are able to combine both of these. You know, the, the fear of emptiness and the loneliness and what's out there and what is alien, and also what is what is alien and chaotic uh, fundamentally about your world that's lurking between your feet the whole time that you exist, right? And so, it, and so I do think that Event Horizon, in, in its conception, wants to bridge those two gaps. And that's, that's the element where the movie really is pretty clever. Absolutely agreed. That that's, um, there, there are definitely elements of Paradise Lost, but the, for me, the ones that stick and stab um, are where Event Horizon overlaps more with something like Rime of the Ancient Mariner. And these are, this is a style of story. The haunted ship story um, is a thing that long precedes, uh, uh, long precedes our technological capability of escaping our atmosphere. Um, and that's what it is. The event, the event horizon has more in common with, say, the Mary Celeste um, than it does with, uh, uh, than it does with uh, the ship from uh, 2001. Um, uh, it, is, it, it is the ghost ship. It is the place. It is the thing that is designed to go where people should not go that had people in it. We expect occupation, and yet that occupation is absent. And that provokes the questions of why, that provokes the questions of how, and ultimately, and I, I think most importantly, that provokes the questions of whether our fears of reaching out into the unknown are ultimately validated. That uh, this idea that maybe we shouldn't go out there, maybe we should just kind of huddle in, maybe pull the blankets up under our chin and call it a day, maybe that impression is actually absolutely true. Um, and if anything, in a degree far beyond our imagination. By the way, that itself is a very 90s trope theme, something that I discovered in, in horror movies is the idea that science has gone too far and we ought to take a step back. A lot of X-Files episodes have that. A lot of horror movies have that. Um, there's almost always a scene in a 90s horror movie that has any kind of scientific element to it that goes something like, well, this is what you get when you meddle with science, whether, <laughs> like whether it's DNA stuff or space stuff physics stuff, there's always some sort of sequence that's somewhat like that, I noticed, in 90s horror films. Um, what you guys are saying is really interesting because it sort of re, um, it gives me a different interpretation of that liberate te inferis, or in fairness, in event horizon of, um, you know, save yourself from hell, as not necessarily being a theological hell, but more um, a, 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 the, 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 
the fear that exists in the back of your mind, whereas 98% of, if you're a scientist, 98% of what you're doing in your work, if you're on the cutting edge, is exciting and amazing, and you're, you're discovering how to traverse, fa you know, space faster than light, and, and all of this is happening. There's that 1% or 2% that is like, well, what the fuck could happen? Absolutely, and I'm so glad you brought that up. That has been on my mind since you proposed this episode, because we both know that that is not a spot-on translation by any stretch of the imagination. Liberate tutte me ex imperis. Um, never mind, never mind that the parsing, uh, that the parsing in the sentence is absolutely garbled, that it's a train wreck. Never mind that. Let's focus on liberate. Um, in the course of the movie, um, this is pitched as uh, uh, this is pitched as a direct English translation to save. Well, save in the English language is a very general word. Liberate in Latin is not a very general word. It's rather specific, and we have a very contemporary uh, transliteration of that. It is the root of liberate. Liberate may, uh, liberate may um, would not be directly translate, uh, translated into English as save me. It would be closer and more accurate to say that it means free me. Liberate tutte me ex inferis would not directly translate over to save yourself from hell. It would be free yourself from the fire, um, which, I mean, I, I know we're I'm totally jumping off into fan theory territory here. I know this isn't what I know this isn't what Paul Anderson intended. I know this isn't what the screenwriter intended, but it makes a different kind of sense of the movie. Because if if that warning from the captain who had passed through hell and come back. If he says, you know, and remember the scene where he delivers that line that we see in the footage. He's holding his eyeballs. This is right after that. This is right on, right after the ooh baby. I'm going to feed you my lips after I rip them off of my face. Bit. Um, he uh, 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 he is saying, uh, as it's presented to us in the movie, save yourself from hell. But that's not. His expression, that's not consistent with the delivery of the line. Um, it's much more satisfied. It's much more, it's an invitation. What that captain is presenting is an invitation. Um, and a more accurate translation of the Latin is actually consistent with that. Save yourself from the fire. The fire he's referring to, if we go with my crazy fan theory, is the fire of the reality that we occupy. He is saving, he is saying, save yourself from save yourself from the universe that you know. Join us. It's invitational. Um, and with Justin's referring to this realm and its influence as the darkness that is consistent. Save yourself from the universe that has light. Save yourself from the universe where stars exist. Join us. Come on, we have free beer. I'm in total agreement with that theory, by the way. Because if, if, if it was written as free yourself from fire, 
And uh, all of the images that we see of this alternate dimension, I, I don't think any of the images showed fire at all. Um, uh, the, the fire of reality, uh, it, it might have been, uh, or more likely would have been, save yourself from the reality you know and, and join us. It's interesting. Noah, you recently watched Sunshine, yeah? Yeah. So you're absolutely on board with this next bit, which um, uh, if, uh, if uh, folks are looking for a, a bit uh, older reference to it, um, uh, C.S. Lewis in Out of the Silent Planet nails this descriptively. The idea that the problem of space travel is not an absence of light, it's an overabundance of it. It's not an absence of the life-giving force from the sun. It is a degree of it that we cannot tolerate. And Sunshine cinematically does a fantastic job of presenting that. Um, from the perspective of a dimension of total entropy, total chaos, no structured energetic exchange whatsoever, we are the fire. Our universe is one of the fire. The solar system is on fire. Um, this overabundance of radiometric activity um, absolutely ties into that, well, more, more accurate translation of the Latin line. Um, liberate, free yourself from fire. Free yourself from the place of fire. Doubling down on my ludicrous fan theory and very possibly putting far more thought into this than was actually put in pre-production. Um, it's not coincidental that the organ that he ripped out as no longer necessary and presented were his eyes. And uh, Weir reiterates that later by stitching his eyelids shut and telling us explicitly where we are going. We do not eyes. We do not need eyes to see. But then he comes back and he clearly has eyes. I'm going to chalk that bit up to. <laughs> oh, my oh, I, I, I know. Okay, Noah, I, I know we said we weren't going to get into the production. Aspect, I'm realizing you have to, so just go for I, it. I have to. I have to. This is how I pay my mortgage. Um, the bit where the bit where Weir has his eyes stitched shut, he's in a chair the whole goddamn scene. He's sitting in a chair the whole scene. He isn't walking around a room. And he certainly isn't getting in a fight with Lawrence Fishburne. I think that ultimately that decision, whether Weir had eyes or not, um, in that uh, in that uh, resurrected bit, really came down to how much money we're willing to spend and how much bullshit is Sam Neill willing to put up with in the course of this production. So I'll, I'll throw something out here. Um, one thing that I found interesting in the in the, the different times that I watched the film is the first two times when I watched it um, I didn't really take notice or take inventory of the uh, the is it the captain the one who uh, sees the bomb right that Sam Neill leaves on the ship 
and explodes. In the first two in the first two watchings of the film, viewings of the film, I should say, I didn't feel that 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 didn't mean anything to me. Yes, yes, Smitty, the pilot. Uh, it didn't mean much to me. The third time when I watched it, it was one of the most, um, say, important, most emotional sequences of the whole film to me, which I thought was really different. Um, the only difference being, again, I hate to always go back to this because I feel like, especially in the circles that we all run with, uh, my deconversion and talking about all that, I don't mean to bring that up constantly as a point of reference, but I think that was that did the difference in this, especially where the look on his face, man. Like, I've seen a lot of bomb sequences in films where you, you the person sees, and it's a five, four, three, two, one, and it's their last few moments. But that scene in Event Horizon, this last viewing, did it for me. And of course, not coincidental of the lockers that uh, of the lockers that Weir could have stashed that in. It wasn't coincidental that he stashed it in the locker of the guy who tried to clock in earlier. Which is which is an interesting twist because up to this point we've been discussing this evil as entirely apersonal, entirely uh, indifferent. And now here with the placement of the bomb, we have an example of, at least in a very, very small degree, a measure of pettiness. What, what would be an interesting movie, but definitely not within the themes of what they were trying to achieve would be the original mission of the event horizon, right? They activate the gravity drive, then what happens, right? Um, but that's but that's not the way that these movies operate. These movies operate in in the sense of um, there's this vast infinite nothingness out there, and we've cast like a sonar, right? Like we've cast a sonar wave out, and we've gotten just this tiny little ping back. But what we've gotten back is enough to terrify us. You know, it's just a tiny little taste of what of what is out there past our furthest ability to reach and see. And but but what that that tiny little bit that we get back tells us that there is something so monstrous and so beyond our capacities that that as to inspire terror in us, right? So the event horizon comes out, goes out, and it comes back. And the fact that it comes back and there's no crew on it, we know there's something awful. We don't know what, we don't know how it works, we don't know what happened to the crew, but we know that there is something in that infinite exploration that it tried to do where it just failed and and it's similar in in that sense to um you know real life disasters i i was actually just reading up on on some disasters on mountains recently and like with mountain climbing expeditions and stuff and there's some there's some disasters where whole teams have just frozen to death in the middle of the night experienced people and nobody knows what happened to them they just they're just you know they, they they come back the next season and there's just all these people just dead who are going up the mountain during the winter you know and now they're just completely dead and and there's an element that's so, sort of the same element as of horizon as far as what what makes it scary is they they went out and then now they're all dead or gone and we don't know what happened to them all we know is it was bad enough that there is now just an empty shell and it's now possessed by something malevolent. That's why aliens scared the shit out of me, uh, is them going to that entire colony where everyone is, you know, apparently dead, and, uh, you know, you, you, they go find them next to the, uh, next to the, the core of the, of the generator, uh, sort of alive. I wonder if Event Horizon kind of borrowed from that sense of terror that was... Um, you know, exactly what you were saying. It was a, a ship that had traveled into the unknown 
and uh, it was located and, and people being on it just creates an, an internal sense of fear naturally. There were early versions of um, uh, early versions of this film, early t uh, conversations about in which way, uh, which way it should go that talked about whether or not to show an inhuman element, uh, whether or not they wanted uh, a, a guy in a foam suit prancing around as the embodiment of hell. Um, and they specifically, Paul W.S. Anderson specifically, uh, steered away from that, said, I, I don't want to see anybody in this that isn't human in order to avoid comparison to aliens. What I feel like we're all sort of dancing around is there's this one element to this film that is captured in a lot of other sorts of films and other subgenres of horror that has to do more specifically than the, just the Lovecraftian unknownness, vagueness stuff to it. But there's, there's a kind of way that that... Fear of disease. Yeah, so it, it, it's another realm that plays some sort of role in this realm. It, it, in other words, it's not just the idea that there's this other place that's chaotic and horrific and doesn't make sense we have no frame of reference, but it's, it's that place in relation to our current activities um, that I feel like is, is, is maybe something like the equation that makes this movie scary. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a fear of disease. It's, it's a fear of something invisible that is in a place that we aren't immunized to, that we aren't, haven't been properly exposed to, um, where we go out and we catch a plague in a foreign land and now we're going to die, and now when we come back, it, we bring it with us, right? That's, that's fundamentally the fear at the core of Event Horizon, is it's, it's, it's the same fear of, uh, and, and there's so many diseases that have um, neurological aspects to them, um, you know, really intense viral infections and stuff can frequently cause delirium and, and so on, and, and so this is something that's really uh, fairly deeply coded into our cultural DNA, is you know, you, you go to a foreign land, and while you're in a foreign land, one of your party comes down with an ailment. And now he's raving and feverish and bleeding out of his eye sockets, and you don't know what the fuck is going on. And now everybody in your party is feverish and delirious and bleeding out of their eye sockets, and your whole party dies. And then the next crew comes in to try and rescue you and they use your blankets, and then so they all come at down with this crazy thing that's, you know, and now they're all bleeding out of their eyes, and they're delirious. Um, and, and it's, you know, it, it, it's before the, the Renaissance, you know, this is during the exploration of, you know, Central Asia in the, in the 13th century or whatever, and so it's, nobody knows about, all, you know, modern science, so it's not even microbes, it's demons that are causing everyone to bleed out of the eyes in this mysterious, you know, land. So, I mean, that's, that's pretty much Event Horizon's story um, in, in archetypical Joseph Campbell-type form right there. There's the cycle. There's the mythic cycle you're looking for. What if we are talking about a disease whose primary transmission vector is attempt at comprehension? What do you mean by an attempt at comprehension? You mean this is, this is how, it, this is how the, the alien force the, attempts to get to know us is through... The disease, the disease spreads from person to person based on not respiratory contact, 
not fluid contact, but cognitive contact. The disease spreads from, from carrier to victim via an attempt to comprehend the disease itself. Yes, and and this is this is actually this is actually very uh, very close to what I was just talking about, where I was talking about you know pre scientific era. It, it, it's it's the fear of disease, not not only in the microbial sense, you know, not only in the sense of plague, but also in the sense of disease as as conceived of in in medieval Europe, right? Um, and the the really crazy aspect of this is that it it causes thought crime to be a form of disease, right? And so and so this is where it ties into Event Horizon, where um, heresy was a disease in medieval Europe. It wasn't it wasn't a difference of opinion. It was an actual social disease. It was it was like a meme that was actually viral, not merely hypothetically viral. And so if enough person enough enough persons were infected through the through the you know heresy meme it would literally bring hell you know you 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 would suffer a plague you would suffer um you know an invasion from a foreign you know force and your army would lose in battle because your people had been infected with this this foreign idea that had spread through the population and was now um you know bringing bringing hell with it as it were and that is why one I identify Event Horizon as a quintessentially horror film. Um, and two, why I love the horror genre. Because the contemporary horror genre is the most explicitly anti-modernist media that one has available to them in mass, uh, in mass production and mass circulation. I, I mean, I, I feel like I, I want to end this podcast by looking at the camera and saying, fuck this ship, and then clicking stop broadcast. I mean, I feel like that'd be a great, great way to do that. This movie is un, is, is almost stupidly cheesy at sometimes. It's got that token black guy trope, which is, is sort of infused into the film. Um, I, I really didn't, the first two times I watched this film, I thought it was, yeah, you can totally bitch, Ben. You are allowed to, I'm about to bitch at some of the tropes in Event Horizon, so please. Feel free. So so many tropes to bitch about. <laughs> no, I, I wanna hear I, I wanna hear everybody else's bitches before I lay on mine. Yeah, I uh I mean clearly, right? Uh there's there's a lot of you know here I come, motherfucker. Like I you know, that kind of <laughs> that kind of that kind of <laughs> shit was the I token black guy, right? The token yeah. black guy. The guy with the British yeah. accent turns out to be evil. Yeah, um, but, I mean the, the but the here I come motherfucker almost saved the okay. What do I do, need to do to my suit to get back to the ship? And then you know almost saved it. But uh, yeah, so oh, it's no. interesting. It's interesting because now I'm kind of so the fact that I see that as a as a as a bitch moment for myself is really interesting. Maybe that's very modernist of me, right? Because so my 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 um, my complaint is. I want to say that it took away from being engulfed in the fear and in the the the, the wet blanketness of this film, feeling unsettled and uncomfortable. And then you have these token black guy moments where it's like, "Fuck this ship! Here I come, motherfucker!" Like all that shit. Just it took me out of that. I was like, "Oh, I'm I'm here, right?" But maybe and, and yeah. here here I think is where the failure to organize the chaos around a unifying principle really hits the movie in the nuts. Okay. okay? 
And and that is like, for example, when you say, you know, here I come, motherfucker, and then he says a bunch of shit about his oxygen tanks, and then he blasts off back towards the ship. If you notice, if you actually watch the movie and you ask yourself, what percentage of the dialogue in this movie is expositional? You're going to find that like 60% of the dialogue in the movie is in some way expositional. People are explaining what the fuck is supposed to be going on all the time. You know, down right down to, you know, well, what do I got to do? I guess I got to blow my oxygen tanks. You know, he tells you exactly what yeah. he's about to do yeah. so that you have a visual frame for what is about to happen, right? The subtitles also. Uh, this, this, it, the, the text in this film went way beyond explaining what I needed to know. Uh, even the, the first minute of the film is like, here's the year that we invented this technology. Exactly. Here's the current year. I was like, oh my God, I get it. Just let me earn some of this, man. Yeah, yeah. another, so another much part of, of it. So much of is devoted to setup. Go ahead, Josh. Another part of it for me was when they were re- repairing the ship, and they they had this hodgepodge of of plating on top of the uh, of the parts that got ripped apart in the explosion, and uh, they try to pressurize the ship, and like this smoky uh, smoky shit was venting into space. Uh, what that was definitely a moment for me when I was like, "Come on, man, just try. All you gotta do is try." All you got to do is try. And, and you know, you could actually at that point in the story say, well, the ship's fucked. We're, we're fucked in this other ship because there's no way we can fucking fix it. Because we're out in space unless homeboys got some, some sheet metal to rivet on top of all the other stuff. So that part of it for me was like a, a huge come on moment. While we're, talking about, while we're talking about shit that just pisses us off about this movie, you remember right at the beginning where we have a nice orbital view of a space station outside Earth that serves no goddamn narrative purpose whatsoever. That's a third of the budget. There right. was an entire sequence intended to occur at that space station. We were intended to see Dr. Weir talking with the ASA uh, regarding their discovery of the event horizon. We were going to see the crew of the Lewis and Clark interacting with each other on that space station. We were going to see interaction with those characters, with what they were leaving behind. But all of the above does not excuse oh my god i just why 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 did somebody in their coke addled mind and it's 1997 so cocaine was still a factor in film production why did somebody decide that they needed to one build a highly detailed model of that space station to do a cyber scan of that space station at a time when that was not a cheap thing to do for 60 freaking seconds of totally unnecessary narrative connected tissue. It makes perfect sense if you were allocating funds on the assumption that you had a $120 million budget. 
Yeah, and and uh, honestly, that's that's a true thing about this movie is that it it has the look of a movie that was intended to spend more money than it did. Um, one of the things one of the things that I marveled at this time when I watched the movie, I haven't seen the movie in a long time, and one of the things that that I just absolutely marveled at this time was the quality of the models used in in the space scenes because they were models. It's not CG; they're actually built models, and they're fantastic quality this is kind of a, a, a private kind of obsession of mine i know a little bit about how they do how they do the filming on this um and i i know a, like kind of like an unusual amount about like how they did it in the next generation and how much that cost industrial light and magic to do and and what the model was like and stuff like that and so looking at the model that they did for this it, it was not cheap it, they they did an incredible fucking job on on the models and on the external space sequences and honestly i one of the things that i thought was the the two things i thought as i was watching the movie was one this is probably one of the last movies that was actually shot with that kind of attention and expense and detail on the models you couldn't get a movie approved to do that these days it would just be cg and the second was how much better the production design was on the practical elements as opposed to the cg elements cg looked fucking terrible in that in this movie and but but every set, all the sets and all the models were fantastic. Antonio, I get told on a daily basis, fuck you, we're not doing that in practical. We're doing it in VFX. I take a look at that orbital shot of the uh, the Earth orbiting space station, and it's it's immaculate. You go frame by frame, it's beautiful. It's breathtaking. It's ludicrously expensive. It's entirely superfluous for the degree to which that level of construction actually served the narrative. Event Horizon, in many, uh, in many regards, is a movie that could not be made today. Uh, one of the other things I want to mention is just, and I, I mentioned this earlier, I think for a second, is the blood. I mean, just everything down to the blood in that film. I, it's one of the things when I think about Event Horizon and I, I think about some of the practical effects, the blood in that movie is more real than probably the blood I've seen in any other movie to date. Period. The they I I, I like the blood in this in this film, and I think it, they did a pretty good job on the blood, except for in the scenes where the overhead lights filling up and the tank is filling up. Um, but the and like the only thing that I've seen better, the the only production that I've seen do it better is. Um, the uh, Dexter series, um, they they do blood fantastically, or they did blood fantastically well on on Dexter. Um, but in this film, I thought the blood was very well done. One of the things I think the movie did well as far as its presentation of blood is that it it really, in most cases, relegated the presentation to either very very quick, like you know, just a few frames where you see something that is bloody or to something that is bloody in the background, you know, like that, that area where the, the lights would flicker and you'd see the, like the viscera splattered up on the ceiling or whatever. Um, and that's where I think that it actually managed to do it pretty effectively because, because it didn't have to have a lot of fresh blood in motion on camera for an extended period of time. And I think that was a smart decision. You know, and 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 to the extent that it violates that rule, I, I feel like those are the elements where the blood looks the weakest, right? Where you see blood on screen for a long time, and there's a lot of it, and it's doing a lot of flowing. 
as opposed to being kind of, you know, dried in the background or you just see it in flashes for a couple split seconds or what have you. So I have five films that I've selected that I'm trying to do in this podcast, five or six, that to me are my either my favorite horror movies or the ones that speak to me the loudest or that are the scariest. We've gone through It Follows, which is one of my favorites. I think, Ben, you probably didn't like that one too much. Um, we did Let the Right One In slash Let Me In. I'm just going to say Let the Right One In because Josh is here and he'll kill me if I don't use Oh, for fuck's sake. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we did Let the Right One In. Um, but, you know, what's interesting I've noticed is that the films for me, guys, that, that – um, that do the work in making me, I don't know, fearful or scared are things that speak to a kind of human condition. So, for example, uh, you know, when when we do let the right one in or or let me in, we'll just throw that one out there. You know, the the there's these social relation elements. Same thing in creep and and these these um, these elements of codependency and addiction. These things that the the dance that we do back and forth as social creatures and how that can go awry, right? Uh, sexuality in in um, in uh, It Follows, and the idea of mortality in It Follows, and death. These are all things that I've noticed that speak to a more fundamental aspect of who we are. And so when I think about that, with the last few films we do- we've done, and I throw in Event Horizon, I'm sort of, it sort of makes me think what this film has in it that is of the same kind of caliber. It's something that speaks to a deeper kind, a deeper, under, a, a, a deeper level of who we are as people, whether we're, it's through our, our fractal selves as social beings, as fathers, as friends, as brothers, uh, as you know, sisters, whatever, our, our, our social relationships, as dances that we do. And then also even something deeper like in It Follows where it's just the idea that we can think about our mortality and we know that we're eventually going to die. And then if we have children and we pass on this life that we have, that they're going to die too, right? There's these, these deep things that horror movies can just as a as a kind of um, as a canvas paint in very different ways, but there's always that connection back to something deeper that is is something we collectively fear, whether that's evolutionary, scientifically, or whether that's something that's maybe only here in the West. We, that's maybe that's worth exploring. But I feel like with the Event Horizon, it may be the more you guys are talking, the more I'm realizing that for me, the fear is that frontierness, that that. Um, that beyondness of our knowledge. So I think when I was really scared of this film was during a time where I felt I had all these answers about the way the universe worked, right? I felt like I knew the way the universe was ordered and I had an answer because it was given to me through a theological lens. And the idea that I'm wrong and the idea that there's this un- the, the, that there's these cracks in the sidewalk that I always see that, that are there and what's under those, right? That scared me through Event Horizon. So now when I watch Event Horizon, right, and I don't have that same lens, it's not as scary to me. Whereas a film like Sunshine is way more scary to me. Right? The idea of, and it has that kind of same element of a frontierness, of an, uh, of a, of an action that is beyond our capability and what lies beyond it, but it's done differently. Um, and so now I, it's something I was just thinking about when you guys were talking, I'm trying to, I don't know, kind of work through. Anyway, yeah, does that make sense? I, I, I feel like there is that unknownness and even horizon that makes sense under a particular framework of, of, of how you look at the world. If event horizon scares you, right, like really scares you, what is it in you that, that is doing the work there? I, I, speaking for myself, I feel like it may just be the lens in which I looked at un, uh, something other than what I know. I don't know. I don't know. I, I think it's it, I think that's 
a great way to put it. I think it is uh, one person looking at a Jackson Pollock and another person looking at a Jackson Pollock and one person saying, this is amazing to me. Here's what I see. And then the other person saying, this looks like a bunch of fucking drippy paint on a canvas. This is not, this is not art to me. So I think that, I think that when we view art uh, and, and we are able to inject our own life experience into that art and our own sense of morality and our own ideas about theology and philosophy, that uh, they assault us uh, in, the, in, in our integrity, in our, in our, in our, in our ability to, to maintain ourselves in a kind of a moral and ethical uh, good grace, I suppose. But I, I think that uh, it's much like looking at that piece of art and somebody's going to see something that's wonderful to them and another person is going to see something that's terrible, especially with uh, something like that. But I mean, it goes against the idea of anti-modernist, but I think that uh, for me anyway, in film and music and art and anything, I am looking for those personal connections to see how my own life experience will affect me during the viewing or during the listening. And that's kind of the value that I get out of it. And I take that forward and move on to the next thing with it. And it helps me grow. So a lot of, a lot of horror boils down to um, really elemental stuff. And, and one of the, one of the really elemental uh, components in, in a lot of horror is the notion of um, mistake. The idea that, that what we don't know is what's going to trip us up. Um, and that, and that being wrong about something, being super fundamentally wrong about something is what's going to trip us up. And, um, I feel like it, it, and, and, and so let, let's tie this into sort of the Buddhist notion of attachment, right? Um, where it's, it's the things that you can't let go or the things that you view, the distortions that you can't let go specifically that, that are what's going to trip you up, what's, what are going to prevent your enlightenment and foul up your karma and, and so on. It's a delusion of some kind um, that feels good to us, that we want to, that's easy for us to maintain, and we want to, we, we want to maintain the delusion um, even though it's, it's harmful to us, right? And so... Um, at, at core, that's a lot of what uh, that's a lot of what horror is about in many cases, and I think there's a case for that in in um, in Event Horizon specifically, where you know the the entity such as it is uh, exploits the the past tragic experiences of people in ways that are that are you know, calculated to, to torment them. Their attachments is, are what torment them to some extent. Um, and I, I feel like this sort of, this, this is sort of what explains why it was scarier to you before than it is now, Noah, because, um, I feel like in the past, when you view Event Horizon, the terror, you know, from a Christian perspective, the terror of Event Horizon is that you were, so close to being right, right? In other words, the idea, the, the reason that Event Horizon is scary from a Christian perspective is it's basically a demon-haunted ship that comes and then sucks you to hell. And, and so you're so close to being right. You can identify all the elements in that story that are evil and malevolent and geared toward, you know, getting humanity, and then, but you're wrong because God is not going to protect you, right? And that's where you're wrong, and that's the terrifying element, Right? And, and you're coming at it today, on the other hand, with perspective of, of not 
it's not, you know, everything that I thought I knew was wrong. Just that there's so much you're coming at it now with, you know, there's so much out there. There's so much we don't know. Anything is possible. Um, reality is not necessarily geared toward a, a benevolent um, instantiation of humanity. Um, and, and that this really is going to affect the way that you interpret a movie like Event Horizon, because when you're coming at it with that secular perspective, there are horrors that are unmitigated and incomprehensible in a secular perspective that simply don't exist on a, the on a theistic perspective. Guys, I really appreciate this. This has been unbelievably insightful. You guys are, are much smarter than I am, and this was just this, – this was very helpful to me personally, and I think hopefully to a lot of people who watched this film and have felt it was, it was very scary to them and, and wondered why. Certainly a cult classic. Um, there's a lot of other stuff we could have talked about in terms of the filming. I'm really appreciative of the fact that we kind of explored some of the elements of fear involved with this um, and how the studio kind of, kind of fucked up some of the elements that, other elements that could have made the film better, but whatever. Uh, so, uh, for everyone else watching, if you want to check out more of our podcasts, uh, check us out on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter at the deadly analysis podcast. Uh, we hope to do more of these episodes. Um, our next session is going to be on the, I think the Canadian, Ben, the Canadian film, uh, Pontypool, which is a very low budget horror film. It's on Netflix. One of my favorites has to do with lingu uh, linguistics and zombies connects those two linguistics and zombies. Uh, so thanks again for watching. Uh, I, Appreciate you guys taking the time to check this out, and uh, we'll see you next time.